Hello and welcome to Metaphors of EdTech, a podcast by me, Martin Weller. In this podcast, I talk about metaphors of educational technology. There's an accompanying book published by Athabasca University Press, which you can check out. It's free to download or you can buy the print copy. And in each episode notes, I'll put links to interesting articles or things that are relevant. So check those out. Now, on with the episode. Hi, and welcome to this episode. It's another one with a, a guest on it. And uh, people, they say, need no introduction. And I think it's probably true of my guest on this. So, uh, Jim, do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, hi. Um, I'm Jim Groom, and I work at Reclaim Hosting. And I heard I'm here to talk about metaphors in ed tech and beyond. You better believe it. So, cool. Thanks, Jim. Uh, I thought, start off, with, as you say, you, uh, you run Reclaim Hosting um great great service great providers love reclaim hosting i have my account there um and i think one of the things i've learned through watching your work with reclaim uh, is how you work with people like brian mathers and i think i was actually sitting around the table when uh the initial conversation happened and you had that kind of initial um branding around vinyl and sort of and reclaim and then uh, vhs tape so i wonder if you wanted to talk a bit about how you've used visual metaphors or metaphors around your kind of branding of reclaim. Sure. I mean, I think you and I both know that this could quickly devolve into a, we love Brian Mathers art. <laughs> um, <laughs> so Mathers love fest. Yeah, come on. Exactly. It could happen. But yeah, I mean, it was really, Tim had created like a Pandora's box image that was kind of all the different applications you could do in hosting. But it was very, it was, it, I mean, Tim was just doing it and gone because he was on to the next thing because he's a machine and he's awesome. Yeah, yeah. But like, I was talking about some of the ideas in Barcelona with, around the table and Brian Mathers was just back there and the idea of it kind of being like an indie record store, he basically came to me at the end of that conversation with an icon of a record and reclaim hosting in the kind of you know, middle part with the label. And I was like, mm-hmm. that is amazing. <laughs> and it was the beginning of basically us a mat trying to mat what we understood ourselves as an independent like hosting company. Yeah. With an identity that was focused on higher ed, but focused on the kind of cultural and always a kind of bit of an odd of fun to other things that inspire us, whether it's movies, music, you know, video games. And so that was the beginning of a relationship with Brian Mathers. And it kind of went from vinyl to VHS tapes. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, there may be laser discs in the future. I don't know, <laughs> DVDs, but yeah. it, it's a really fun metaphor to think about like, A, the idea of us being an indie label or an indie ed tech, kind of like I think of like Discord Records in the US is being kind of fiercely independent not basically giving over their rights and their artists and their kind of various musical rights to bigger record labels because they know where that leads. And I just really liked that. And I felt like that was, there's a space for that in the work we do because we've written for many a year now about how people, you know, all good intentions, you know, they get the right offer from the wrong person and and they're off. They're off. So I don't know. I I think that worked pretty well. And he's so kind of like that metaphor was so rich that we could basically do anything with it. So one of the things that he did, 
And it kind of goes to a more recent example is we've moved into this thing called Reclaim Cloud, which is mm -hmm. kind of a, a next generation from what cPanel was for a whole new series of applications. Yeah. And so when we made the shift from the vinyl record to the VHS, he actually, if you look at the art, the vinyl label is actually cut in half to be the two reels of the VHS tape, which I thought was really brilliant. Okay, yeah, cool. Consistency. Yeah. yeah. But then on top of that, when we moved into Reclaim Cloud, which is completely container-based, he made the VHS tapes basically the containers on yeah. a container ship. And it was just, you know, that kind of stuff, unfortunately, I could take no credit for. Like, it's all Brian. I'm just like feeding ideas. And he's like, yep, 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 yep. And then he has the genius vision and we're able to cash in on it. So it's a great relationship. Yeah, I, I, I was at your presentation that you and Lauren gave at uh, OER 23, and you were talking about containers. And I must admit, I've not really understood containers before. I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not that techie minded, you know. And I've seen you blog about them um, over on Barva Tuesdays, and you know, I sort of got them. But I think that image you had of the container ship brings really, oh, I get it now. Like just like containers, do all the, you know, I'm not sure they are all the same size, but for, from the way I think of it, you know, metal, all the same size. You can put in them what you want. And then you can stack them after sort of and, and, and that kind of was a real, uh, you know, sort of eureka moment for me in understanding what containers were. And I think often when you're dealing with quite techie stuff, but you're trying to get it across to people who, who don't really want to dig down into the complexities of cPanel and, you know, and what the latest version of PHP is they need to be running, those kind of things. That could be quite difficult to get across. And, and I think metaphors are a very powerful way of, of doing that. I wondered if you kind of like had any thoughts around that. I do. And I mean, brilliant that you say that also, because like the ship in the metaphor, and I know this is audio, so I'm going to use my best descriptive capabilities, okay. which are limited because the visual, like you're saying is everything. And that's what I have found with reclaim hostings art. Like you got this big tanker ship hmm. and then on top of it are these series of stacked VHS tapes which yeah. go with our brand, but like you said, talk to each of the different applications or environments you can run within a single container environment. So it kind of gets at the point, like you have this container and within it are individual containerized environments. So like the server is the container ship and each of the applications is the containers, which for me, I think is amazing because the best metaphor I think I have come across in tech and maybe you have a better one. But for me, this one has blown my mind is the way in which the folks have at Docker have taken the whole idea of containerization, which was applicable mm -hmm. to shipping in that industry, and basically use that um, revolution to explain the revolution happening in server infrastructure. Yeah. And for me, that really blew my mind because you had all the things like the questions around efficiency, scaling, you know, security, independence, all of these things, which the shipping, uh, the shipping industry we're talking about in the 70s, 80s, are now being mapped onto server infrastructure. And the cool bit is it has both the kind of happy whale idea like you have yeah. with Docker, but there's a dark side to it too, like with yeah. the shipping industry, like where yeah. all, where do all the, the jobs go? And like, what is that shift happening for the folks who have been working with, you know, bare metal servers for 20 yeah. And that's the same with the Stevedores. That's a good point. Yeah, yeah. And I so, think uh, th 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 those containers were 
they're quite a simple in the shipping industry you know it's like what a simple idea why haven't we done this before but i said they completely revolutionized the industry it's like suddenly it didn't matter what you were shipping stick it in a container or if you want to have if you don't fill up a container someone else will come in and have part part of your container and then we just everything was standardized you know throughout the world and the ship standardized and it just completely changed that industry and the having that then applied to servers and you think, oh, okay i get that now i, I see how that works yeah yeah that, that, that's and really it's smart brilliant right like yeah, yeah and then here's a cool thing and you're going to appreciate this because like you like you i come from like a literary background Mm -hmm. So in preparation for this meeting, because I take everything Martin Weller does very seriously. That's the way to go. Yeah. <laughs> I did some of that research and the name of the, the Docker whale is Moby Doc. Okay. Really? Based on Moby Dick. <laughs> I didn't know that. It's cool. And so I was like, oh, that's weird. And so I, you know, did a research and DigitalOcean has a guide where they talk about the use of nautical metaphors to explain wow, containerization okay. and technology where they talk about how so many companies like MariaDB is a series of seals, uh, MySQL is dolphins, and then how <laughs> all of these different tools. Like I love the, it. Isn't that great? And <laughs> Kubernetes is basically like a helmsman. So that's someone who drives the ship. And yeah. Kubernetes is a technology on top of Docker that allows you to orchestrate containers. And it's like one of the early orchestration for Docker Swarm that didn't work out was called Shipyard. So right. that whole image yeah. where you take the containers and move them places. And I was like, this is a whole world of metaphors that basically things like DigitalOcean are also playing on. Yeah. Like it's really the whole nautical relationship to these metaphors, but then also and I'm, I'll stop soon, but also check this out. So Docker comes up around, it starts in 2013 officially. That's when they announced it. I think they got their funding in 2010 and they're a French company. Mm -hmm. And so they come out in 2013. I start to hear about them in about 2014. At the same time, I'm teaching a class on The Wire, right? Yeah, I was going to come to The Wire. Nice. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> I'm sorry, but like that's... Like hey. that second season is mm -hmm. all about the automation of containers and how these yeah. guys are basically going to be without a job. Yeah. And I basically saw that relation pretty early. And then it came, that's how I understood it is basically through the wire as a wow, reference for the bigger reference of how that changed the global economy and good for us because we can send uh, goods cheaper but bad for a whole swath of the industry. Yeah, that kind of which... ecosystem around that. Yeah, it's cool. And I think it's interesting then from what you're saying about what they've done is that it's not just a metaphor to explain things. There's also a kind of a two-way thing between them. Like it's actually shaping how they're implementing it by trying exactly. to model some of this stuff as well. So it's a very generative metaphor, yeah. It really is. I mean, I've been blown away from the beginning when I heard that Docker metaphor and just how apropos it is and but also its ability to capture the scale of what's happening in the industry in ways that i think the cloud is a terrible metaphor because mm, yeah. the cloud is like yeah something's happening out there yeah. but it's nebulous <laughs> and you don't really know yeah. what it is and don't yeah, worry just about to it. throw it out there yeah <laughs> whereas this is this is like here exactly is the mechanisms by which server infrastructure is changing cool i think um to go back to the reclaim branding um the, the use of the 
the uh, records and the, and the videos sort of spoke very much to to your brand as well. I think your your Jim Groom brand, if you like, if you want to go that, that crass. Um, and it was kind of made it very playful and fun. But I wondered if there was any, if you thought about any kind of downside of that, because sometime in part two of this, perhaps we'll talk about some of the other uh, metaphors you've played with. And I think uh, one we, we could talk about was edupunk, um, which is very powerful, but I think also very off-putting for some people. They If they didn't like punk, they kind of felt like, you know, it was middle-aged white guys like us two going to sort of relive in our glory days and I wondered whether there was any if you had any, any reservations about that around the kind of reclaim branding yeah I mean it's a really good point because with edupunk right like that did it was loaded and then I found that going to something like two numbers two letters and two or three numbers like DS 106 because mm -hmm. it was so empty of meaning we could yeah, feel it and it cool. become its own thing so that was kind of an always interesting shift mm -hmm. like i felt like ds106 was edupunk it just yeah. couldn't say it was because too many people were like edupunk's stupid and you don't even know about <laughs> punk music and you're not punk yeah. enough to say yeah, it right. so, yeah. so it gets all because that's the whole thing that when metaphors are good often they bring people in and mm -hmm. that can have good and bad effects because they have real deep relationships to it yeah, and some exactly. of them are not you know intended and so there's those limits with the brand though a funny story to give you some of that so me and brian matters are talking a bit and tim is not part of this conversation at the time and you know me and matt and i'm like yeah you know it's like a record store like you get someone like jack black and high fidelity who'd be like you know judging you for your choices yeah. of technology <laughs> right yeah yeah and so he's like yeah kind of like someone saying like no we don't sell celine dion here <laughs> and like you know kind of a, a little bit of a judgment call yeah, yeah. a little bit of an inside and probably not tim loves celine dion i did not know this <laughs> So there you go. And he's yeah, like, so Dude, <laughs> this is my company too, you know. Don't go dumping on the Dion. No, it's right. Exactly. She's a legend. <laughs> so so, so yeah. it is. I mean, whenever you're playing the cool card, you know, it's it's a trick. You you gotta be playful about mm -hmm. it. And I think luckily, you know, Brian Mathers art is everything and playful. And I yeah, think that's certainly. why we get away with a lot of it. And people haven't really had a problem with that but i'll tell you one thing and this is kind of so what we've been doing is we've been naming a lot of our servers either after bands mm -hmm. or after video games and yeah, maybe movies one day but one of the the bands we used was bikini kill yes i remember this yeah yeah and then someone was like i find that offensive and you know i found myself in the odd position of trying to explain like well, actually, it's yeah, a yeah. band, not a, you know, military experiment <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, by yeah. the U.S. and the other yeah. side of the world. So it can get tricky, you know, if yeah. you're if not. It requires kind of inside yeah. knowledge. Yeah. So that's that's the thing. But luckily, it, it really, in terms of the reclaim branding, in terms of hosting companies, I think people come to our website and they're like, wow, like there's yeah, not a picture absolutely. of a server. Yeah, that's right. Or, or like, what's the one that used to be, used to be GoDaddy? Or she used to have pretty women in t-shirts, like smiling. Come to us. You know, exactly. It's just like really naff. Yeah. Like, yeah, I agree. Yeah, with you. I think with Brian's stuff, we've experienced similar with GoGN. You know, we've kind of had these two handbooks out about research methodology and conceptual frameworks, which are not the most fun subjects. You know, it's like, and but. Brian's graphics in those have really brought them to life, I think, and made them very playful. And and 
there's a kind of implicit message in them, which I think is also the same with Reclaim. It's like, you know, this stuff is approachable. It's for you. It's not like yeah. it's for someone else. You know, it's like if, if you've got pictures of penguins building, you know, sort of wacky racer cars, you know, think, well, okay, I, I can come to this. And even if actually we were talking about it's quite dense, you know, it says you're welcome here. And I think it's the same for the, for the Reclaim branding as well. You know, I was thinking about this, Martin, too. And like, I think every, and I hear Brian Lamb in the back of my head saying, it's not a movement. <laughs> but every movement or everything often has an aesthetic. Mm -hmm. And I just think like, for me, like that was what Brian Mathers. And I think it's been amazing to see other people in the community more broadly work with him because I think that sense of, of an art frame to what we're doing and that sense mm -hmm. of there's a playful inviting what you're saying like in for the work we're doing is so like i think that's where so many technologies and so many universities and so many courses miss it yeah like, absolutely yeah yeah <laughs> it's the, the driest thing you can get it's like okay this might be interesting but whoo it's like <laughs> anyway so um Thanks. That I've really enjoyed talking about the reclaim branding and metaphors. So perhaps in the second half, I thought we might uh, explore some of your metaphors you've used on uh, on your blog in particular. We're both big fans of eighties horror films. Maybe we yes. can go down that path. So uh, good. We'll rejoin for the second part. And stop. So uh, welcome back. We've just been talking about uh, Reclaim Hosting and their use of metaphors. And now I'm going to talk to Jim about um, blogging or anywhere else we want to take it. But um, Jim, so how long have you been keeping the Barber Tuesdays blog now? Uh, that's, <laughs> it's almost, I had, I started in December of 2005. Okay. So I think it's almost 18 years. Cool. Yeah, I think you're about a year older than me. Yeah, that's where I first came across you back in what we used to call the edgy bloggersphere. Um, yeah, I love it. And I think uh, your your writing is often very, is nearly always very playful on that. I, I remember, I think I've told this story. Um, you used to blog a lot about WordPress and you were very knowledgeable. Uh, you're still very knowledgeable about WordPress, you know, and quite detailed stuff about, you know, plugins to use and how, how to do CSS and things like that. And someone asked me, oh, uh, is there a good uh, blog site for, you know, how to use WordPress? And I pointed them to your 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 blog. Uh, but the first post up there was actually you talking about um, what's the zombie film uh, in in the UK? It's called Zombie Flesh Eaters. Dawn but, of the uh, Dead? No, it's not Dawn of the Dead. It's the other one. I think it's Night called Zombie. Living Dead. I think it might be called Zombie Two in the uh, in the oh, US. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, yeah. but anyway, I, th I think it's uh, yeah. That's right, Fulci. That's right. You you had a clip from that, I think, where a zombie is fighting a shark, <laughs> and, and this guy was like. How can it be a proper website about about WordPress? It was featuring a zombie fighting a shark, and I think that you know that that wasn't. I don't know if you're using it as a metaphor, but I think that kind of mixing up of everything uh, is is typical of of your blog, and, and I think mine to a degree too. Um, and I think as part of that, we tend to use metaphors to kind of bridge these gaps, both for ourselves between our interests, but also I think to kind of try and see something new. So I wondered if. Um, there was a particular metaphor you wanted to pull from from the after the bar for archives. Well, I'll tell you, you have inspired me recently with your Judge Dredd stuff to go back yeah. to some of that because 
I, I mean, to that point, like the work you're doing there, and I know you've been into graphic novels. And for me, that's always been the joy of, of blogging is, you know, having your interests, right? But then trying to take that small thing and then apply it to the work mm-hmm. you do professionally. And I think it's fun. And I, I understand there's limits to it, like with the metaphors we were talking about. But like, it makes it, it I think it invites more people in. And it also just allows you to not divorce the work you do like is so dry like we were talking mm-hmm. about previously like it kind of opens up that thing so the one i really there's a bunch but one of the ones i really liked was when i was in grad school i would study um i was actually studying early american literature but i found myself in these films classes all the time writing about film and that's why yeah. i probably never finished my phd <laughs> because i should have done film but i didn't but I was in this and we were talking about like New York City films. And I grew up in Long Island and we used to go mm-hmm. into Manhattan in the in the 80s. And it was, you know, a very different Manhattan than it was in the 90s or 2000s. Yeah. And I was hearing people talking about movies like Chud or, mm-hmm. you know, movies like, you know, um, Crocodile Dundee and all of these different films, which actually helped you understand the context of New York in the 80s mm-hmm. and gave you insight that these films themselves never really may have intended. But because they yeah. were a document of a time, they opened up whole ideas about gentrification and the politics of that. And I mean, it's just I love that idea that film could do that. But for my blog, most of the time I found myself in places like The Shining. Mm-hmm. With Jack, you know, Jack Torrance, because I think, you know, part of my own coming up as a writer and a blogger and a ed tech was struck by the demands of family versus mm-hmm. time versus money and versus yeah. not feeling that. So like the film, The Shining of all things became for me one of my touch points of fun and doing the work and no play, but also trying to understand like where jack torrance is in the maze and it with his family versus yeah. this idea of doing the work but he doesn't do any work his wife does all the work yeah, so yeah. it almost became more than a metaphor an analog of my of my personal life with these films and i kind of in some ways like would write through that stuff like when i was revisiting a lot of these 80s movies I would write through that. But probably the coolest series of movies that I kind of come back to again and again is the zombie films, right? Yeah. And you and I were going to do something where we tried to compare the idea of zombies and what was happening with zombie movies to what's happening in EdTech. That's right, yeah. And right? That's a pretty rich vein, I think, there. That's Absolutely. Right, yeah. And we were right when the zombie stuff was blowing up and then it would eventually kind of die down a bit and they would get too fast and too smart and they were no yeah, more yeah, zombies. Right. Yeah, yeah. And then we, we, we don't have fast zombies, not doing that. Yeah, I think since I, you talked about The Shining, I uh, reread the book recently and I, I think I'd read it, you know, when I was about 14 or 15 uh, previously and I sort of read it as a straightforward horror then. And of course, now when you read it, you kind of get it as an allegory for alcoholism and, you know, all sorts yeah. of things. And I think... Um, uh, the film is, is is very rich as well and i think that's the thing about good art it's you can take whatever you meaning you want from it and what's the name of the documentary about all the sort of various conspiracy theories about room the 237 shop? that's right yeah room 237 you know it's like so it's about 
the fake space land and moon landings or whatever you want to see. But that's the, that's the point of good art, isn't it? And and even if it you're often deliberately getting it to say something that it wasn't intended to say, but that that's not the, the point. You know, it's, it's the point is that it's rich enough to draw many different conclusions from. Uh, yeah, and I, I think um, and and. Another metaphor that you use a lot is music as well. I think you know that's that's often very powerful as well, and I think you can draw you can draw a lot from that. And perhaps we'll just re revisit Edgy Punk one more time if it's not too painful. But I think the original idea of Edgy Punk was very uh, was very powerful. And, and you talk about how uh, you had a kind of uh, eureka moment when you were uh, talking about stuff. I think it was with Brian Lamb, wasn't it? And you, and you said it was just like punk, you know, it's like and and you could then riff off that, you know, about how. That kind of DIY attitude and you know a whole kind of aesthetic that came with it, and of course lots of stuff came around punk, the the, the zines, uh, that kind of approach, you know, and, and the independent record labels which we talked about, and I, I think that whole kind of ethos of that's what you can do with technology now was actually very powerful. Um, but maybe you want to talk about from your perspective the way it sort of then became a, a runaway metaphor. I think it's a really good example of a metaphor that's like it becomes too much. You say and you're like, no, I didn't mean that by it, and it sort of just goes off and has a life of its own. Yeah, I mean, I I did. I I even the fern the the first image with with the edu on yeah, yeah. the fingers yeah, yeah. and the punk here yeah, yeah. and written over the wedding ring with yeah, like yeah. Kind of like, you know, it was a joke. Jerry yeah, yeah. Slazak and I were kind of playing around in the office. We had, I had been talking about it and writing a bit about it. But I felt like, you know, it was one of those things you felt like, oh, my gosh, I, people are reading. Like, people are commenting like, this is fun. <laughs> yeah. And then it quickly became like, you know, punk is the wrong example. Like, punk does not. Or I'm not into punk. I feel yeah. like outside of it. And, you know, sure, that's that's bound to happen. And I grew up a lot during that because I grew mm -hmm. up and I kind of understood a little bit more about the web, not as much as other people had to learn several years later, but like, kind of like, oh, okay, you got to remove yourself. But I do think the metaphor worked, right? Mm -hmm. Like okay. we had all these new tools. We had all these possibilities that were not the kind of, you know, institutionally sanctioned tools, but they were better and they were more relevant and they gave the students a real sense of literacy in the web. Like, like we really had something good that people can put in their hands and try and understand what's happening culturally. And it felt like that. Like, I still feel like that with the technology because I don't, I'm not interested in anything institutional and I'm not really interested in anything that scales too big that it can no longer be fun to play with. Mm -hmm. And so I think in that way, I think of groups of ed techs as bands. And I think they come together and they have a time together where they can yeah. do cool stuff. And then that time ends because everybody's got their own thing to do, like with bands. So my whole thinking about educational technology has been about cool groups that have gotten together and done cool stuff together. And then they left the legacy of the work and the blogs and the images and the fun. And I feel like in that regard, I do feel like I've been part of a real culture of people mm -hmm. who have tried to do something that was not the expected, you know, I couldn't imagine, and I'm sorry, and this it might come off wrong, but I don't mean it, but I couldn't imagine going to work every day being like, okay, it's time to check into the blackboard and make <laughs> sure everything is, you know, posted correctly. Like I understand that there's a place for it and I don't want to discredit yeah. that, but I just feel like 
you know, part of all of these technologies from the LMS to the MOOC to whatever it is that's coming next, like part of it's our problem and part of it's our fault. And yeah. so like, I want to really be clear that, you know, we all have to decide what we're going to do with the time we have during this thing. And I don't want it to be wasted on, you know, institutional tech that oftentimes does more harm than good. So, yeah. I mean, I guess, I mean, that's a little bit righteous. Like I, I try and avoid it, but it gets, it pushes over to the righteousness. So let me pull it back. <laughs> but I do think like, it was fun. And I think a lot of people it resonated with them because the tools were there and the web was not as toxic as it would yeah. become in about six, seven, eight years when yes, things blew up and it was no longer so easy to do this kind of stuff freely with your students. It yeah. just wasn't. I, I think um, since I read a couple of um, uh, autobiographies recently from Peter Hook and Steve Morris about their time in Joy Division um, and uh, Peter Hook talks about how they, they went to see the Sex Pistols uh, in the 76 gig in Manchester, him and uh, Bernard Sumner, um, and there are a couple of other people there. And it turns up in the film, 24-hour parts of people's are Basically, they all went, we're going to go and form a band now. It's like, and I think that sense of, we can do that. Um, yeah. So even if, you know, punk's not your thing, I think that similar sense of seeing people do things online, thinking, oh, I can do that. And you see that with podcasting, for instance, you know, this is by no means a professionally produced podcast. We think, well, I can do that, you know. And I think that's the same, you know, with keeping blogs and stuff. And it, it, it's about that uh, removal of permission, I think, and just being able to have a go. And I think that's what was exciting early on in the web. And then I think as we've kind of, in some ways, matured with our kind of educational use of it, we've put back in a lot of those kind of, barriers that were there to start with that make it much more like a kind of serious publication process and you need permissions to do x and y and everything and i think that's that's what resonated with me on that that, that metaphor I think. and you know what i was thinking about this recently martin like when i talk about blogging i think part of our identity right as educational technologists for us right at this point we're bloggers like we've done this for a long time and when i first came into blogging this is kind of a funny story it's i didn't blog I, I would blog in a few months after this, but one of my grad school buddies, Matt Gold, was like, yeah, I started a blog. And I'm like, how's blog? Like I was a grad student, I was kind of a jerk. And I was like, that's, so you're just writing? Like, you know, yeah. all the things people would say to me in a few years. And he was like, yeah, and it's amazing. And he's like, really what's, what we're doing is we're offering alternatives to the mainstream media. Like yeah. there was like a logic in 2003, 2004, where they're like, the mainstream media has given us this for too long. We're going to re, we're going to take back the means of production and we're going to offer news stories. And these people thought of themselves as like local, like independent journalists that were mm. writing alternatively to what. And I was like, you know, it's so crazy. And I believed that in a few months. And then I, when we, Ed Tech, like I took it on in that small role, but then not really mainstream media, but just, you know, different narrations of my work. But think about that in 2003, 2004 to like 2015, 16, yeah. when like everybody's off the blog, like me social media is mainstream media. Yeah. And like that whole co-option process, because when you said the Sex Pistols, it made me think of it, like the whole process in which the co-option is real. And there are some people and I was reading a PJ Harvey recently, an article in 1995, right before she broke out in LA, mm -hmm. the Mayan theater was her kind of, and she's like, 
I don't, the, the interviewer was asking her about success and she was like, well, I don't know if I'll measure success the same way as you two in Bono. Um, I'll probably measure my success about whether I've kept my integrity and consistency around what I feel like I want to do artistically throughout my career. Yeah. And I was like, here's a 22 year old, like, like just knowing what success meant for her and what her artistic career, she was not inspired by money. She didn't want to be in the big city and part of the scene, but she wanted to produce like consistent, authentic art. And I was like, yeah, right. Like that is awesome. And I want to do that. Like, I would like that to be a small, stupid legacy here in ed tech, but like, I don't want to at some point be like, well, here's, and we see it with stars all the time. Like talk about movies. It's like, did you have to do that role? Like did you, Jack Nicholson, did you have to do as good as it gets? (laughs) Like, did you have to go there? Like you're Jack Nicholson. Yeah. You don't have to do the Marvel movies. You can say no to that. Exactly. Yeah. Like you don't have to, but, and it's funny, like I, I read that recently. I mean, literally the other day. And it, it struck me like that's a very simple idea. Mm. And the co-option, though, is so strong. And the sense of us to be these thought leaders or to be taking what you have and the small following you have and use it as a as a bat to beat other people up with is I don't know. I I, yeah. I run the other way from that. Yeah. See, see too many of those, but we won't name names. So absolutely not. No, that's just about you, actually. <laughs> it's <okay>. Fair enough. <laughs> cool. Well, it's been great having you on. Thanks, Jim. Um, Thank you. And I, I was going to go down the Doctor Oblivion route for for Oh, video drone! I didn't even I'm, go that way. I thought I, I, I won't make you revisit it, but maybe I'll put a link to some of that stuff in the uh, in the show notes. You want to so, make the, uh, the story a little bit longer and talk about video drone? Okay, let's do video drone. <laughs> let's do I video didn't even drum. think of that, right? Okay. But like, but like, let's think because I mean, I don't know about you. I don't really have much of a memory anymore. But like. <laughs> If you think about Videodrome for a second and DS-106, mm-hmm. the summer of oblivion is what we called it. That's right. The whole idea, the craziness of Cronenberg was he was a student of McLuhan. And so he took a graduate student with a class with McLuhan where they would talk about oh, really? media. And yeah. And so like yeah. he was like, basically, Dr. Oblivion was McLuhan. And McLuhan in, in the movie, which is Videodrome, for those of you who, who haven't seen it, Videodrome is one of Cronenberg's probably more famous movies where the essential idea is the, the character, James Woods, who didn't age well, um, comes <laughs> in, comes actually, you know, into this community, this cult community where um, the VHS tapes of this kind of now dead cult leader, Brian Oblivion, are actually infecting people's brains. And basically changing them bodily. So it's almost like an infection where they bodily become, you know, controlled by the cult and become like killers. But it's like with most things with Cronenberg is very bodily. But there's some element in in, um, Videodrome where or scene where Dr. Oblivion gets on. So James Wood is first seeing Oblivion tape and he talks about how the media is far more real than real life. Yeah. And how this experience of watching 
is far more interesting and compelling. So he says he has never actually done anything face to face with anyone for years. Now, part of that could be because he's dead and his life is only on these VHS tapes. But that whole conceit made me think about what if we did a class for DS-106 where it was taught by someone who for 25 years had never dealt with anyone face to face, had only been online. <laughs> like kind of yeah. going against all of a lot right. of the blogging you do about like why are we treating online as if it's a second class citizen compared to face to face and this really inverted that so we took dr oblivion as a character but kind of a boring professor but was doing it online and that was his claim to fame yeah and then he goes missing and then we kind of get this <laughs> weird 80s horror story coming out of it that has nothing to do with videodrome but like that was the kind of compelling conceit for the Dr. Oblivion uh, 10 week summer course that the students really kind of got into and they took over the class and it was amazing. It was really the best experience I've ever had. Intense. Yeah. Oh, it was I, great. I, I had um, Eamon Costello on a previous show. Um, he was talking about speculative narrative and I was talking about how metaphors and narrative are sometimes seen as the kind of flip side of the same coin of ways of coming to understand the world and i think the oblivion thing was a, was a good example of that you know it was both a metaphor for technology but also had a kind of compelling narrative as that sort of summer unfolded which which kept people involved in it. i think it was good to do that but you, when you started shaving your head jim that's when it was you can you can take a metaphor too far uh, the, the story there is when I did shave you know, the little hair I had and I kept a, a mustache, not only did I look exactly like my dad, which was really one of those moments, like I am middle aged now, but my wife and kids didn't recognize me. <laughs> and Antonella was like, you're not going to, the bed is no longer shared with you until things start to grow back and you start to look like the man I married. Um, but yeah, that was, it was a blast. And I think the other thing is full credit to people like, um, Tim Owens, Martha Burtis, who yeah. after the second episode, I was really kind of like having a breakdown, like because I'm already not the most stable, but like I was in there and I was doing this and it was so into it. I was like, I don't know if I could keep doing this and feel like I'm not becoming oblivion. And obviously the family <laughs> reacting the way they did. <laughs> but Martha's like, go missing have Jim Groom, the TA come in and then we'll start writing the story because I was going to play it straight. And so cool. we were basically like, a, and there's that whole idea of the EdTech group and the band. Yeah, we yeah. were basically like sitting together in a room, coming up with what the next, you know, X amount of weeks for this course would be based on, you know, what we wanted to actually them to learn. And it was really, I mean, it was maybe like a small glimpse I'll ever get to what it would be to be like a TV writer like what's yeah, next yeah. in this episode? <laughs> what, what, what crazy things can we do? I can't imagine trying to get that through my course approval process, but uh, that, <laughs> that would be fun. Anyway, yeah. Well, so thank you, Jim. But thanks for revisiting that <laughs> that fun period. Thanks for indulging yeah. me. Forget and it. Thank, thanks for coming on. It's been really great to talk to you. So, thanks, uh, Martin. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening to Metaphors of EdTech. Remember to subscribe if this is your bag. Uh, and also check the episode notes for any useful links and fun things there.